All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salemi. This is sort of a Device Talks weekly podcast light version. Light in that we're not going to have Chris Newmarker with us today. In fact, I'm not even here. I'm on vacation, but I didn't want you to go a week without a podcast unnecessarily. So uh, I'm so glad I had a, a great interview with Andy Dorswami, the CEO of Koya Medical. Uh, Andy and I spoke last month about uh, his drive into medtech and about the reasons he started Koya Medical. It's very, very personal. And uh, very important, and I'm happy he shared that with me. Later on, uh, we'll hear from Todd Brinton. Todd is the Chief Scientific Officer and Corporate Vice President at Edwards Life Sciences. Some of you may remember Todd's interview. This is actually the first time I have replayed an interview. I spoke with Todd in early January, in early 2020. It might have been as early as January 2020. Ended up playing the interview in May of 2020 uh, because we didn't get the podcast started as soon as I thought we would. And uh, I just enjoyed it so much. Todd's an interesting guy. He's got a background in entrepreneurship but uh, decided ultimately to, uh, to, to join Edwards for some very good reasons. And I just really enjoyed Todd's story and the way he sort of pushed to get where he is. So I wanted to uh, build a theme around innovation and entrepreneurship this week. And we have two, two great stories for you or two great guests for you to, to convey those stories. So I know you'll enjoy those. Uh, I did want to say before we get into this week's podcast that uh, just I wanted to, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to all of you who have, uh, who have joined the Device Talks family. I'm grateful to all of you who have let me become part of the MedTech community. And uh, I don't think I say it often enough, but uh, I really, maybe I say I enjoy this podcast, this industry a great deal. I probably say that often, but uh, I really do appreciate all of the folks who, who make this their career. And I really do appreciate all of you who have let me be part of those stories. So thank you for, uh, for being part of Device Talks. Thanks for listening to the Device Talks podcast. Thanks, of course, to everyone who is registered for Device Talks Tuesdays, and I'm super, super eager to, to see all of you at uh, one of our upcoming Device Talks meetings. And again, we'll be in Boston in May, Minnesota in June, and on the West Coast in October 2022. So uh, this, again, is, a, is sort of a special podcast, so I did want to just take this opportunity to say thanks again. Thanks for, uh, for including me in your life and in your journey and in your medtech career. And uh, thanks for listening to the podcast and being part of, uh, of our content here. It's great to have you. So now let's kick off our first interview where I speak with Andy Doraswamy, the founder and CEO of Koya Medical. Well, Andy Doraswamy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's great to have you here. We've, we've connected in the past, not for this podcast, but uh, on another uh, a successful startup you were part of that ultimately will be acquired. I'm um, excited to talk to you about Koya Medical, which uh, has an interesting approach and has received some, some great FDA or great news from the FDA. Before we get into all of that, though, I always love to find out a bit about our, our guests. Uh, how did you get into being a, a, a medtech entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, I guess we can now say, Andy? Well, thank you, Tom. It's, it's been a while uh, since we connected. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've, we've been busy. Um, just to give you a sense of background um, for where I started and how I started in medtech, uh, it's actually a very um, serendipitous story. Um, so, so I come from India, born and raised in India, a modest 
uh, upbringing and, and uh, had the chance to, to really uh, have a great exposure to, uh, to engineering right off the bat and wanted to build things. So became uh, a chemical engineer and went to school there. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, even now, I think I, I still think like a process engineer uh, for, for most things in life and uh, had the opportunity to, to join uh, the University of Arizona to pursue a master's in, uh, in engineering as well. So I moved there early uh, in Tucson, took a, took a gap year after that. I wanted to self-reflect and uh, wanted to take some time off. Mm-hmm. Ended up um, moving to uh, Southeast Asia for, for the gap year. <laughs> Uh, bought a motorcycle. It was an old uh, Czechoslovakian uh, bike called Java. Um, and uh, it wouldn't go far, but uh, sure was reliable. So bought that, traveled across Southeast Asia, ended up in Nepal, and basically wanted to take a mountaineering course to become a mountain <laughs> guide. <laughs> well, all right. Yeah, so you're probably wondering, how did this end up in MedTech? Um, so, so really enjoyed uh, climbing and learning how to traverse on uh, and on glaciers, across glaciers, high altitude, really was fantastic um, to, to have a lot of time to self-reflect. And ironically, when I came back to one of the campsites, uh, there was a cataract surgery expedition going on. Oh, interesting. They did a camp there, essentially providing uh, free surgery for a village in, uh, in Nepal and had the opportunity to, to observe. Uh, so patients would practically be what we consider like, you know, clinically blind. And the very next day they would be able to see. So, so that was my first exposure that I that sort of, I think uh, everything came together, went back to, to school uh, to pursue a PhD in biomedical engineering. So very in, inspired by it. Seeing that taught you that you wanted to have that sort of impact on the world? Exactly, yeah. So it was uh, pretty powerful. Um, the, the patients would break yeah. out into a song and dance the very next day. Um, I mean, the, the, how we perceive the world is primarily through sight. So loss of sight, as you know, can be pretty devastating. Um, so this, was, this mm. left a strong impression on me. Oh, I bet. I can't imagine. So what was uh, your first uh, your first experience with a, a medtech startup? Yeah, so f- first experience, I was very lucky. I think everybody needs a few few breaks to, to find this. Uh, for me, it was uh, right out of school. Um, I joined a Bill Link-backed uh, company that was uh, developing intraocular lenses. So essentially the lens that is used to replace the natural crystalline lens when they go, you know, when they get cataract. Um, so again, very lucky to have that opportunity to really learn. Uh, my job initially was to uh, invent and develop an intraocular lens. And I got to say, I mean, it was just a tremendous amount of fun. We, we built a great team and uh, really enjoyed uh, taking it from literally from concept to clinical to uh, FDA approval. It was a class three device. And uh, we, you know, we did the studies and uh, now uh, it's, it's uh, run by Santan Pharmaceuticals in Japan. Um, and uh, Bosch and Lom has the U.S. US uh, rights for it. It's called Envista. 
IOL. So it's wonderful to see all this uh, through and uh, I think more than 6 million uh, folks have now been treated with it. That's remarkable. So were you, when you went back to school for biomedical, were you set on ophthalmology because of the experience you, you had at that, uh, at that clinic in Nepal? Or did that was, I mean, or did the opportunity to work with a Bill Link-backed company, just uh, Bill Link, of course, of Versa Ventures, a seasoned in- investor, especially in ophthalmology, uh, or previously with Versa Ventures, uh, was that just too strong a lure and that kind of brought you into the ophthalmology realm? I mean, if I'm being honest, I think uh, it was a total fluke. Uh, I didn't plan any of it. Um, <laughs> uh, my yeah. focus was mainly in, uh, in lasers and optics. I really enjoyed uh, working with how lasers interact with the body to treat. So coming into the intraocular lens world was purely by chance. Uh, that too, uh, a building back company, absolutely chance. Um, but uh, I seized the opportunity. I saw that this is, uh, and we, you know, the group of people you could learn a lot from them. And they were seasoned, obviously, right? And then you had the opportunity to work in a second uh, company that was backed by Bill Link and others, uh, Oculi. And we can talk just briefly about that. But that uh, that had a successful outcome as well. What did what was Oculi focused on? Yeah, Oculi, as uh, as you know, you've covered this before, is as uh, a is a startup out of Stanford. A biodesign, which was backed by NEA, Kleiner, Perkins, and Versant, uh, where we were essentially starting off with an implant to stimulate the eye uh, to produce tears. It was a pretty wild idea. Um, and uh, I joined, given my implant background with Michael and the team, and uh, we, we were focused. And we, within that journey, we ended up inventing a home health neurostimulator, which, uh, which allowed us to really discover a new way to stimulate the nerve. So that was a lot of uh, first. And uh, again, I think my introduction to startup was there. And it was a lot of fun. So tell us a bit then about uh, your, your path to Koya. What was, uh, how did you find this opportunity or, or create this, this opportunity? Yeah. So it's uh, another, uh, I think, uh, strange uh, ways how, um, how you, how you discover things, but um my dad, who turned 76 a few years ago, um, ended up with uh, prostatic cancer, um, which, which was unfortunately a week after he retired. And uh, he's basically worked his entire life to, to give his kids a shot at, uh, at growth and, and opportunity. So, so me and my sister, who was an oncologist, um, were obviously worried. Uh, we obviously hit up all the key oncologists and he got the treatment, which was uh, surgery and radiation. And not long after, his uh, feet started swelling, which uh, to me was quite puzzling. So when I asked uh, her, asked her what's, what's going on here, she said, oh, yeah, this is lymphedema. Um, and that made me sort of very curious of saying, what is it? And so I started talking to more folks in the field that knew about this. And that sort of gave birth mm-hmm. to, to Koya and what we're doing now. So what is lymphedema? Lymphedema is, as the word describes, it's uh, edema from impairment of the lymph nodes or the lymphatic system. Mm -hmm. It turns out um, it's a very common side effect of cancer treatment. So for for all the women and men that get treatment through radiation or surgery, uh, breast oncology, pelvic cancer, uh, there's also venous-related disorders uh, due to... uh, a variety of comorbidity, but basically when your lymphatic or venous system is impaired, 
the system for clearance of toxins and uh, uh, basically the lymph function is impaired, it has nowhere to go, but it collects in that respective limb or other parts of the body, which uh, starts with swelling, but soon if left untreated, it uh, precipitates into cellulitis and ulceration. Uh, a terrible disease without a cure. It is a chronic condition as well. So we wanted to really do something about it. And, and you mentioned the, the presents as having a, you're, you're with, with swollen feet, but I imagine there's a great deal of uh, discomfort that goes along with that and the immobility of, of being able to, to walk comfortably. That is correct. Yeah. Beyond uh, not being able to, to generally be mobile or, uh, you know, live your life. Um, the, the disease, as you right. can imagine, is, you know, they've just been through cancer um, that is a reminder of uh, our mortality. It's, it's, I think it's very difficult to anybody who's gone through it. But now they're left with this, uh, which, which uh, is, is, I think, both physically as well as uh, psychosocially impacts them uh, because it doesn't go away and you've got to constantly be on top of it to treat it. And the treatment options haven't really uh, evolved over the years. So therein lies the opportunity to do something there. So what was your approach to finding a, a solution for or, or potential treatment for lymphedema? Yeah, so for, for that, uh, it starts with a need. Um, we, what we ended up doing right off the bat is talk to the experts uh, in the field. So uh, fortunately, mm-hmm. they're all based, uh, a majority of them are based in the Bay Area. And we traveled elsewhere to find these experts and talk to them. And, and the way the patient journey works in, in this ecosystem is, once they're diagnosed, um, they go through what's called a um, lymphedema therapist who essentially manages their disease by providing manual drainage, right? So it's usually intense therapy for several weeks. They see them uh, on an ongoing basis to, to ensure it doesn't uh, relapse and, and ensuring the edema is in control. So that's where it starts. They also go home with uh, compression sleeves uh, if you've ever tried wearing them, I mean, those are very difficult to get in. And, and those are to maintain the, the uh, reduced uh, limb volume. And then uh, recently, mm-hmm. there's been uh, clinical evidence around uh, pumps, which are not too dissimilar from ventilators that generate air and uh, push the fluid out. And what is Koya's solution? So, so as we looked at this, uh, essentially the patient journey and patient path, it was uh, very obvious that uh, there were several unmet needs that came to surface. Uh, one was, uh, you know, I think, I think patients didn't really want to be tethered and be uh, immobile. Uh, I think part of the idea for this disease is, it's, as I mentioned, it's uh, psychosocial as well as physical, uh, they didn't want to be tied down and they wanted to be in control of their own management. So self-empowerment, self-use, being able to move and basically live their life uh, was a key message Mm -hmm. we received. So we, what we ended up doing was looked at that carefully and the invention that uh, gave birth to the company and our journey is a wearable that is active in, in a garment. So it's an active garment that's uh, powered by lithium-ion battery and a smart material called nitinol, which sequentially compresses um, 
and allows them to be fully fully mobile and active. Explain to me how uh, how exactly it does that. How it how it alters uh, how it's able to provide the pressure necessary to to treat the lymphedema. Yeah. So an active garment is a is a new uh, avenue that we've created based uh, based on the discovery with nitinol. So when you manipulate nitinol with electricity, it shrinks mm-hmm. and you can make it expand. You can basically play with its shape memory properties. It is done in a passive state with uh, cardiac stents and other applications with uh, orthopedic implants as well, as you know. And what we've done is uh, we've activated it and we can manipulate it live uh, using a controller that can shrink and expand through a programmable circuit. So the shrinking and, and expansion essentially acts as the pressure that is delivered to the limb to apply the sequential pressure to clear the lymphatic. Does the patient have the control over this or is this something that's set by the physician? Yeah, so the physician's um, definitely involved in the care path. They fit them. So part of what we have done here is uh, each device is measured to fit for the patient. They come in all sizes and shapes, as you can imagine. And there's upper extremity, there's lower extremity. So we fit them for their particular need. And the patient is able to use it uh, with a touch of a button. So your phone is connected to the controller through a Bluetooth, and you're able to access the device um, to obviously to want to control, but also to know your therapy sessions. And compliance and adherence is clearly important in uh, managing chronic disease. So, so we've done that as well. Let's uh, talk a bit about some uh, some of the successes you had this year. In, in January, you closed on uh, 11 million Series A. You've got some great investors, Arboretum, Affilion. What was the process like raising that capital? This would have been, I guess, during the height of uh, the lockdown in the U.S. Uh, did that uh, prove it to be challenging at all? Create any, any uh, impediments you had to clear? Uh, I'm sure COVID was uh, difficult for. Everybody everywhere, it probably still is in many ways. Uh, we fortunately had um, very good relationships with um, a lot of the investors that have backed us now. So that definitely helped in uh, having them follow the Koya story. We closed a seed in uh, 2019. And then uh, recently we closed around with Arboretum as the lead. Um, so fortunately, uh, even through COVID, we've been uh, head down in execution mode. And then in May, you got uh, 510K clearance from the FDA. Uh, so is that your, your final principal hurdle? Are you ready to commercialize? Talk, talk a bit about the review process first. Uh, I'm not sure what sort of trials, if any, were necessary or what sort of testing was necessary. And then let's talk a bit about what's next. Yeah, thank you. So we did receive FDA uh, approval for for our Dayspring product, which is um, a treatment for lymphedema for both the upper and the lower extremity, and uh, we are now given that hurdle. Uh, we are now commercializing. We're doing an early pilot in in the U.S. And uh, as you saw in the release, um, we also have a leadership team in place. We're very thrilled to have. Uh, um, Damien Ripple, Lisa Lolstone, and uh, Rick Biro join us to to essentially expand our efforts to commercialize Dayspring. What does this commercialization look like? What who are you selling to? Are you reaching out directly to, to patients? What uh, how do you how do you 
market and, and sell a device like this? Yeah, no, that's a good question. We are currently focused on um, expanding our clinical studies. So we're investing in uh, demonstrating the use and, uh, and adherence with uh, Dayspring as we pursue this further. And we're also uh, selectively commercializing. We're still, uh, you know, in the early stages of commercialization to, to learn, but the two areas we're focused on are educating and, and uh, reaching out to the leading breast uh, oncology and breast cancer-related lymphedema, as well as um, primarily the uh, lower extremity lymphedema, which can happen through uh, the oncology side of things, as well as the chronic venous elements. So we're focused on uh, focused on these call points. So uh, going back a bit again to the, the testing, you're trying to demonstrate uh, that it's effective or are you trying to demonstrate that people are more likely to uh, use it, comply to a treatment, keep on it? Uh, what, are, what are your endpoints and in, in your your post 510k clearance tests? Yeah, the 510k involved uh, proving that this is uh, functioning similar to the leading uh, pumps in the in the market, which have uh, demonstrated efficacious use and hence the label. So we're fortunate to have a very um, exciting label on this in terms of uh, treating not just lymphedema, but chronic venous insufficiency as well. And the studies themselves are focused on enabling movement, which is uh, so important uh, for these patients because right now that sure. is not an option. So we uh, we get a lot of positive uh, anecdotes. Um, you know, patients uh, love to be out and about. Some have uh, taken the device to to their vacation. Uh, one of them sent us a picture from from the beach in Hawaii using the device. <laughs> so so it's very encouraging to see them uh, actively engaged with a with a therapeutic uh, that is a wearable um, which is something we we think will enable adherence and uh, engagement with care uh, especially for a chronic disease as you know it's uh, it's all about ensuring you're on top of it has your uh, your dad been able to to use this to benefit from it he did as soon as uh, i think he, he uh, i think had the prototype so he's tried it i think he's uh, i'm happy to say he's uh, on top of it, he he is definitely using it, and he sends us feedback. So I think that's uh, always nice to see. Uh, and final question: What is uh, what's next for for Koya? Is it uh, focusing exclusively on uh, on this product, or do you see some opportunities to to expand? The team is very innovative, so um, the, there is a lot uh, that we're working on now, and there is more to come. Uh, one of the exciting aspects for us is uh, you know beyond uh, focusing on lymphedema and uh, venous care, we're also uh, getting a lot of interest from, uh, from NASA as well as uh, some of the space-related research. So similar to what we observed in eye care for glaucoma, you know, we're seeing that lymphatic and venous health is very important for space travel. So mm -hmm. the platform we have developed using the, uh, the connected wearable as an active garment uh, does seem to have a lot, a lot of additional implications uh, beyond beyond Earth. 
Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting thought. I hadn't uh, hadn't occurred to me. So excellent. Well, Andy, it's it's great to uh, connect with you again. Uh, and uh, it's a unique uh, medtech story. Not, not many of them take us up uh, to the into the the Himalayas. So I appreciate your uh, your sharing that path path with us. And uh, best of luck moving forward with Koya. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andy Dorswami. Now, I'd like to start my interview with Todd Brinton. Todd, once again, is Chief Scientific Officer and Corporate Vice President at Edwards Life Sciences. Well, Todd Brinton, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Tom. So we like to begin these uh, these stories hearing how folks found their way into medtech and you've touched upon several parts of the medtech industry and we'll get into your 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 very interesting career into this podcast but let's let's start at the beginning you began as an engineer if i've done my research correctly how did you sort of set upon that path to become a, a creator of medical technology uh so <laughs> i would tell you that i was uh, heavily influenced by my my parents my father was an engineer, his father was an engineer, and his father was an engineer. Um, <laughs> and I remember very, very distinctly uh, driving around uh, when I was uh, finishing high school looking at colleges. And my father, as I was sitting in the back seat with my parents driving around with my sister next to me, said, what do you think you want to do in college? And I said, I think biology and anatomy, physiology is the coolest thing in the world. And he goes, wow, that's great. Fantastic. Biomedical engineering. Done. And I went, Okay. <laughs> so that was so, easy. Uh, yeah, it, it was easy. It wasn't. It wasn't as easy to get through. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I really had a passion for, uh, as I said, anatomy and physiology. And I certainly I loved math and and uh, I loved kind of uh, you know mechanical things. And so it was kind of a natural marriage to put those things together. But frankly, back when I was looking at colleges in the late '80s, biomedical engineering was very very new. Um, mm -hmm. And there wasn't a lot of programs in the country. And so really no one kind of knew exactly what it was. And frankly, one of the challenges was that everything that a biomedical engineer could do, a mechanical engineer in mechanical could do better. Uh, anything that was kind of electrical in bioengineering, an electrical engineer could do better. And so it took some time, both for me and, and frankly, the field for to establish kind of what biomedical engineering became. And so I, I knew that, you know, I had a father who was an engineer. I kind of thought, I'll uh, I'll go into engineering and learn about it. And I thought I really loved business as well. And I'll kind of follow my father's footsteps, who was an industrial engineer and went to business school and was an executive uh, in a Fortune 50 company. And I'll, I'll do that. But I, I had this passion for for the uh, more the biological, anatomical, physiology sciences. And so you know, biomedical engineering became a really good uh, merger of those two things. It's fascinating that biomedical engineering sort of had that feel at the time of being a new thing that you wondered, I guess at the time, whether or not it had legs uh, and whether it was something that was an area where that was, well, it spoke to you and was your passion, whether it was the, the necessarily the right practical direction. We, we see so many of those sort of fields emerging today in med tech and outside of med tech and digital health and such, where it just feels like you're on the, the, the early stages of the ground floor of something. What was it that sort of kept you focused and, and, and made you feel that you were on the right path? How do you, how do you stay true to, to what you want to do and let the practical thoughts sort of put those aside? You know, I always wanted to do something that was impactful. I really credit my parents who just said, you know, do something that really matters. And matters meaning matters to you, matters in a meaningful way. 
Um, and so for me, it felt like, you know, science and, and mathematics and those things were something I could do. And I wanted to do something that was meaningful. So I would say that most of the stages I've had in my career, and there's been, you know, lots of turns and lots of pivots have really been for, you know, the purpose of really finding that I wanted to do something that was impactful. And there was an opportunity to do something more, I thought, more impactful or impactful in a different way. And and the other thing was, you know, again, back to uh, to several uh, mentors I've had along the way, which I would say that mentors and, and you know, my parents are really the, the reason that, you know, I, I made a lot of choices that I made um, is is don't be afraid of a new challenge. You know, be willing to actually take risk. Um, as long as you feel like there is something that is interesting to you and can be impactful, don't be afraid. Um, don't let fear drive you. And mostly don't let the fear of failure, you know, scare you out of the chance to mm -hmm. do something different. That's so important. You graduated from the University of California in San Diego with a degree in biomedical engineering. Did you know you wanted to go to a larger company, which were just emerging at the time? Did you have an eye towards startups? What happened after you, you graduated? What was your what did your path look like? Yeah. So, you know, in 1992, when I finished uh, at UCSD, it was a tough time in the economy, actually. And it was back to that kind of uh, skill time of, of uh, mechanical engineers and electrical engineers were um, being a little bit limited in their capability of finding jobs. But biomedical engineering being new, it was, you know, I'm sure companies were asking themselves, can I really have a biomedical engineer? What do they quite do? I think it's a great field, but from a practical perspective, I have something I need to build in a mechanical engineer. Or I need something electric. I need an electrical engineer. Um, so for me, it wasn't really a choice of big company, small company. And frankly, in 1992, it was actually um, getting a job. <laughs> and so uh, I had been an intern at a startup company that I had found on a, on a board. My dad said, I think you should get some experience. And I said, nah, that seems like a good idea. And I met two guys that had, were in a very early startup uh, that had come out of uh, Kodak Labs. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, you know, I got some experience. And, and frankly, jobs were not uh, plentiful, but they were, they were willing to let me do what I thought biomedical engineering was, kind of looking at clinical opportunity and trying to think about, you know, specs for what a new uh, technology would need and trying to build it, trying to test it clinically. Um, there wasn't a lot of that back then. And so they were willing to let me do that. And so that's the first job I took. It was at an early, early startup called Pulse Metric that was based in San Diego. I was an intern there. And it was also an opportunity to do lots of different things. I mean, it was, you know, I remember filing a 510K. Uh, I remember, <laughs> uh, you know, running an engineering group. I remember doing market analysis. I remember going with the first early consumer product that they were working on that wasn't necessarily related to what I was doing. It was a, kind of a first out to, to do some, to, to commercialize. And I was setting up the booths at the trade meetings. I mean, we traveled there with two other guys and we put this little plastic pop-up booth and we stood on our feet for eight hours. And I realized how hard that was to kind of, you know, walk that path and what it took to really actually develop something and get it out to the market. And that was a time when I graduated in 91. So I'm, I'm very familiar with the climate you're talking about. But that was a time four years later, 96, 97, when things started getting crazy with the internet and the economy and, the, and IPOs, even in the medical device field, you could take an earlier stage company public. So there must have been some appeal to you to sort of stay in that field and stay in the medical medtech startup world. But you decided to, to, to go to medical school, which is something someone always, everyone else I've talked to has always considered that prior to going into medtech. And it's sort of, oh, I don't want to get in, go into medicine after all, but I'll go into medtech. You went into medtech. And then went into medical school. How did that transition come to be? 
again, I would say it comes back to mentorship. I had an mm-hmm. unbelievable mentor who was um, uh, Tony Demaria, who was the chief of cardiology at UCSD. Um, he had been the youngest president of the American College of Cardiology, and he was a uh, he was involved in, in imaging uh, and early technology, and so he. I went to him to do some some validation of some uh, some of the technology I was working on in the cath lab, collect data, and and he, he kind of turned me on to this world and and said, look, you could you could do this, but but if you really want to do this big, I, I you love this, and and I always thought actually kind of privately about the idea of being a doctor, and he said you should go mm-hmm. to medical school. And I think, you know, at that point, the challenge was you're four or five years into your career, you know, is now the time. And it's interesting because I have people ask me all the time while I'm thinking about it. And I said, don't, you know, if you want to do it, do it. I would encourage anybody who's passionate about it. Don't let anything you hear out there, oh, medicine's changing. If you believe that that's the path that's going to give you the skills and the passion to do what you want to do, do it. There's no time that's too early or too late. For me, it was actually not a direct course. I applied to medical school the first time and didn't get in, didn't get in mm-hmm. anywhere. And it was probably, <laughs> my mom reminds me all the time, it was one of my probably, you know, toughest stretches in my career of kind of disappointment. I, I was having this great job and early in med tech, but I'd found that I wanted to go to medical school. And then, of course, I couldn't get in. I was very fortunate. I applied again the second time, um, got two interviews in the entire country. I think I applied to 35 programs. Wow. Um, all the things you were talking about, you mentioned 1996, the, mm-hmm. the boom. Yeah, so was medical school. It was the all-time highest time, most competitive time to get in medical school in history. And as a result, there was just booming number of people that were applying to medical school, and I couldn't get interviews. And so I had two interviews, and frankly, I didn't hear about anything to the middle of May. Keep in mind that medical schools are generally all full by then. <laughs> And it was actually oh, wow. it was actually uh, Tony DeMaria that told me, take any excuse you can, get on a plane and go out there and tell them you want it badly. Sit in front of them and say, I really want to go to med school here. You know, have a legit reason for being there. I gave him some abstract that I had submitted with DeMaria that got accepted to this, you know, to the American Heart Meetings and said, I just want to update my resume and tell you how bad I want to be here. One of the best advice I ever got from anyone because I got accepted to medical school the following week. And it was another big pivotal change for me. Um, so if, if you didn't I, manufacture that opportunity for an interview, you, you don't think you get into that school? No, there wasn't a chance. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. No, it was. Uh, and it's advice I've given lots of other people I passed on, which I think is really meaningful, is if you want something, you're passionate about it, you know, don't be afraid to go out and do everything you can. It may not work out, but do everything you can. Don't have regrets. And for me, I was very fortunate. Kind of the stars aligned and they... They offered they offered the job. There's actually a, <laughs> a even more detailed. They I got back on Friday afternoon. This was uh, right before Memorial Day weekend, um, and I got home from work, and there was a message on my old voice machine that said, "Please call the medical school." And it was the Chicago Medical School, and by the time it was Chicago, it was closed, and I had to wait the three day weekend to call them back to find out what they wanted. Um, and, uh, not an exaggeration. I called in the morning as early as I can. I think on Tuesday morning, um, uh, didn't get a hold of anybody. They said they called me back. And when I opened the door to go to work, I ended up, uh, uh, having a FedEx package in my acceptance sitting outside the door. That's amazing. That's such a great story. I don't want to harp too much on this period, but, but was there a moment where you were saying maybe this isn't the right path because it was so hard? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think uh, absolutely. I, I, you know, I almost changed my mind. And in fact, 
I, uh, I knew it was the path I wanted to take. It was the path I thought was right, but I thought that they didn't fit. I didn't fit there and they didn't want me. Uh, and as a result, I, yeah, I really evaluated. In fact, applying to, to medical school the second time after being rejected so hard the first was, uh, was a tough decision. And you know, of course, I decided to apply to twice as many schools, <laughs> thinking of twice as good a chance. And I was very fortunate. And the truth is, the Chicago Medical School took a risk on me. Well, you know, I was a strong student. I had a very strong GPA as an engineer, but not quite the same as, as probably people coming from other degree programs. And it didn't make me quite as probably as competitive on paper. And so, you know, I was very fortunate that they saw something and a hunger. Um, and something I would say is I say all the time to to people and management teams is I think hunger is one of the biggest components of success that you look for in people. Um, you know, most people are smart. Most people work hard. The truth is how bad do they want it? What, what, mm-hmm. And why are they hungry? What are they hungry for? Are they hungry for making an impact? Are they hungry for themselves? Are they hungry? You know, so for me, it was a one of the probably one of the most valuable learning times uh, in my career. Probably one of the most painful stretches too, and and I think people around me would say I wasn't, you know, always in the best of moods during that period of time. But it was defining for kind of what would come uh, in the future. And what were you hungry for? I was hungry to do something big. That's the mm-hmm. truth. Uh, I and I wanted to do something that not wasn't big like famous big, or I wanted to do something that was impactful. The same thing I said before, and so mm-hmm. I thought being able to do that to patients, being able to do something in medicine, being able to see something you created um, for patients and see it all the way and what it did was going to be the absolute most fulfilling thing I could ever imagine doing in my life. And 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 then you know, jumping a little bit forward as a as a clinical as a as a physician as a as a practicing interventional cardiologist, I had this balance still of being able to do it every day and operate and see what you did. But then also I was working on projects that had a longer cycle. And so, you know, it was a really, really nice balance in a career. It was a busy day, but, uh, but I kind of had, it it was, I loved it. That's terrific. Did you go into medical school with the idea that you would still have a life in med tech or were you fully into becoming a physician and, and treating patients? I thought I, I, you know, I knew I wanted to go uh, and treat patients. Uh, mm-hmm. I really thought that was, but I, but I thought I'd probably do. Was interested in, in, in my mentor at the time, Tony Demaria, had been an academic. You know, he took care of patients. He was an investigator. He was involved in some early technologies. Um, and as a result, I think I saw that as kind of a, a great model of what I was interested mm-hmm. in doing. Um, I don't think I saw it as, although, you know, I questioned it uh, along the way, whether I would be a hundred percent clinician. But when I really got into medical school and I was looking at different areas, I thought I could do this all the time. It just seemed, I mean, you know, being there, I just, I, I couldn't wait to practice. I couldn't wait to get, take care of patients. It was just, I was hungry for it. So it, it was kind of like one of those things that I knew I always wanted to do deep down, but I wasn't kind of afraid to admit because I thought I knew it'd be hard. And I knew it would take a long time. And then, of course, you know, I took the longest training path you could known to man, as I've been told by multiple <laughs> family <laughs> such like what that many years. But but I liked it. So, you know, that, I would say that's probably what I was looking for. But it changed over time. You know, I think I, as you each step of the way, I didn't know necessarily what was coming, but. You know, people they ask the questions, in interviews. Oh, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? It's always wrong. 
I mean, it just it, things change and, and opportunity presents itself. And if you're willing to take opportunity and take the challenge, I, I think it can create some incredible uh, new experiences. And your timing was was perfect in terms of heading over to Stanford after your medical school with the emergence of the, the biodesign program. Did you know you were sort of getting into a hotbed of the, the two industries that you really wanted to be part of? So biodesign hadn't started when I was mm-hmm. when I was looking at it. Uh, biodesign started in 2000. I was uh, coming in in 2000. Um, but when I went back and was looking at, uh, I originally was going to go back to UCSD and I, I I credit again Tony, but I also credit Paul Yock tremendously. When I um, when I was looking at kind of where I wanted to go, um, I thought Stanford was an incredible program, and and frankly, had always had this kind of private passion to being going to Stanford. My grandfather had gone to Stanford, and so when I was a kid, he used to take me to Stanford football games, and so I thought, but what a great place to go train. But Tony Demaria said, "What do you really want to do?" And I said, mm-hmm. I really want to do technology, med tech, academically. And he said, the two best guys in the world are Paul Yock and Peter Fitzgerald, two mm-hmm. of the most elite kind of brilliant med tech people around. And so I, uh, I said, okay. And I went up and interviewed at, at Stanford and uh, was also fortunate enough they took a risk on me. And ironically, uh, you know, I, I got to Stanford and, and started my internship. You know how you start kind of the last week of June, usually, you know, the 25th, I think, is the way they used to do it. There's always this crossover. I remember calling the first week because Tony said, you know, you need to connect with Paul Yock. And I called and I got, I think his uh, secretary said, well, I think I have a meeting for you in October. (laughs) 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 And I said, I said, Okay, that's not going to work very well. And I thought, okay, and I just kind of accepted it. And you're, you're, you know, I was working a hundred and the old internships, brutal. Um, and I thought I'm, you know, I'll be lucky if I have any time to do this thing anyways. And I ended up calling back and I actually, I think by October, November, I was working on my first project, first company with Paul. It's funny how it all works out. Worked on my first project. And, and, uh, again, another guy that took a huge risk on me, you know, and, and taught me a tremendous amount about innovation. Biodesign was starting in 2000. He was just forming the first group of three people. And I had been a biomedical engineer at UCSD. Paul was also forming at that time. Uh, I think it op- started in 2003, 2004, the, the, uh, the Department of Biomedical Engineering, which hadn't mm-hmm. existed. At and so he was the first chairman. And we'd sit down and talk about bioengineering at UCSD and what I liked about it, what I didn't like. And he kind of got input and helped shape kind of what bioengineering ended up uh, as the first chairman of bioengineering, who ironically, Paul's not an engineer, just one of the most brilliant, creative, and in, you know, inventors uh, in med tech. And so, you know, between that time, biodesign was starting and, uh, I was there doing my internship and residency. And then he said, Hey, why don't you do a, uh, why don't you do a fellowship? Uh, it was the third year I met Josh Macauer, another, you know, unbelievable influence and, and, and mentor along the way. And, and they sat down and said, you know, you, you should do a fellowship with us during your training. The, <laughs> the true story is I said, yeah, I already worked in industry for five years. I, I'm good. <laughs> and they said, no, I think you should do it. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm real busy with my clinical training. And they said, no, we think, you, you know, it'd be a good fit. And I did it. And it it was probably the second big pivot of my career. It was uh, it had such a powerful effect of the way that I saw medical problems and I saw innovation and a good example of how I f- really fell flat on my face. I uh, I worked the first two or three months uh, looking at some op- you know, projects I want, thought I wanted to work on, problems I thought I wanted to solve. And I took them to both Paul and Josh 
who were mentoring me. And they literally looked at me and said, this is not good. <laughs> this is, in fact, these are not all problems. These are all solutions. And I said, no, no, no. And I actually, embarrassed to say, argued with both of them saying, no, no, you don't get it. And ultimately, it took me a little longer. And it, it really, uh, I really started to see things differently. It was like kind of my eyes opened up to thinking about how I could approach innovation you know, if you're trained as a physician, you're trained as an engineer, we think in the problem world, we think in the solution world. And uh, we don't, uh, you know, we don't, we don't think ultimately about what's needed, or what, or what, the, you know, where the, where the, the opportunities are to create innovation, because we're immediately jumping our brain to thinking about how you solve a particular set or constrained area, um, and not what could be. But if you take that off the table and think, you know, about what the unmet need is, um, it really changes everything downstream from that. And that, that was a huge change for me. And fortunate enough, when I finished my fellowship, uh, both in biodesign and I finished my interventional fellowship and I was joining the faculty at Stanford, both Josh and Paul asked me to stay on and, and to take over first the graduate course and then ultimately, uh, the fellowship and, uh, another, you know, another pivot in my career that really had a big influence. Now, how did that feel to you? I, I saw on the website that you said you're, you described yourself as a big, bit of a square peg in a circular hole being at Stanford, being in the academic world. Did you really feel that way at the time? And, and did, did, how did you sort of convince yourself again that this may feel different, but it's something that, that this is the right path for me? Most, most of our, our career, I think we're taught to conform. In other words, you, you, uh, want to get into some high school or you want to get into college, you need to conform and, you know, your grades need to look really strong. You need to have great scores and your test scores and do what everyone else does and compete on the same criteria. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing's true for medical school. Uh, the same thing's true for internship and for residency and sometimes for fellowship. And the irony is that once you finish the biggest, and I remember Peter Fitzgerald telling me this as a piece of advice, he said, your whole career, you've been told to conform. Now you're at the stage where everything is about differentiation. Now be different. And I, I really felt like I was a square peg because most of the people who'd gotten uh, to Stanford had done, you know, typical academic research, had K awards for research, you know, NIH funded research. And I was someone that was really interested in innovation and frankly, you know, in the startup world and, and uh, in industry. And that looked very different to an inst most institutions. Now, Stanford um, is a very entrepreneurial institution. Love it. Now, I, I could not be more happy with the, the, the time I spent and the training at Stanford and the relationship I still have with Stanford. But, but I think it was, it's, it's very atypical. Uh, mm -hmm. most is a traditional route of, you know, academic funding. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, basic research. It's publication in the most prestigious journals, which it should be. So I was doing something a little bit different, but for whatever reason, and it probably was the mentors. I felt that what I was doing was different, but special. I kind of found my place. Um, I mm -hmm. found people who were like me and that liked some of the similar things that I liked and were driven by some of the same things. And so in that sense, I found a home at Stanford, but I was still in the larger scheme of things at Stanford, still a little bit of the square peg. I mean, I never, never thought in a million years I'd be a physician. Never thought in a million years, and most of my friends, I'd be an academic. Never thought I'd make it to a full professor at Stanford in a million years. So that's why I said you just never know what's coming. And I love the – I saw a webinar you gave, and it was an image. It must have been a Google Maps of, of the Stanford uh, campus, and it had sort of a, a Venn diagram of 
three circles. One of them was the engineering school. One of them was the, the medical school. And then the, the biodesign program was sort of right smack dab in between the two, touching both circles, uh, sort of indicating on campus that you were really plugging into both. And that would seem to be a really comfortable place for you, sort of did that straddling of those two worlds. No, it was. It was. Uh, yeah. And to, to uh, be able to, you know, uh, operate in the cath lab, uh, and at the same time, you know, come out, see patients and walk across the street and sit in with engineers, uh, and to, to immediately go to a lecture and lecturing something on a problem or watch a project they're working up. I just, it, it literally, you know, challenged, challenged me in a, in a way that was so fulfilling. I couldn't get enough of it. Now it was just, and then, you know, to be flocking around, around in the afternoon and see patients, it was just, I loved it, uh, and and I could I could go on it hour after hour, which was the big joke. But then came you know then again came uh, other opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, you know opportunity to start some companies, opportunities to to then uh, grow and move to where I am now. Well, talk quickly just about the success in the startup world of, of uh, Shockwave. You were involved with with that company, and that's and that's going well. What was that uh, experience like? And in, in did it sort of whet your appetite for, for more startup success? And once we cover that, I, I'd love to talk about your, your move to Edwards. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I, so, uh, you know, Shockwave has been an incredible ride. Uh, Shockwave was not the first ride. I started a company right out of biodesign that, that, uh, uh, that didn't make it very long. In fact, I, uh, I thought I had this, uh, you know, great, great problem to solve and heart failure. Uh, it was the first project I worked on and, and, uh, thought I had a really interesting concept and was very fortunate to that Paul introduced me to Casey McGlynn over at Wilson Sonsini. Mm-hmm. Um, he sat down with me and, and said, I think it's a really interesting idea. We were really interested in supporting you. I said, I don't have any money and I really didn't have any money. I mean, I'd been a medical resident. I had two kids at home. I, I, uh, had gotten through years and years of training and he said, well, We'll support you. He introduced me a guy, Jim Shea, who's a phenomenal IP attorney and, and Renzio Shaglin and has done that for years up there. At the time, he was actually at Wilson Cincinnati and started his own firm. And they spent hours and hours to me putting together the idea. And I thought, okay, this is fantastic. Here I am being an entrepreneur until the dark day came that we found some blocking IP that it published about a week before my idea. Oh my and it God. really was blocked. And that was disappointing, but the greater disappointment was the bill I'd run up with Wilson since <laughs> And I remember, uh, I remember sitting down with Casey, uh, and saying, I mean, I was petrified. I thought I am done in the Valley. I, I, I can't, how am I going to pay this bill? And Casey was amazing. He said, well, I'm going to write this off on one condition. And I thought, I'm done. I never show my face. And he said that you bring your next project. And so that was, that started a, a incredible relationship I wow. have and still wow. have with Casey. Um, and I started a second company was with a uh, physician, Alan Mishra at Stanford. Uh, we founded it in DeNovo Ventures, funded it. Jay Watkins, another big influence in my career, another incredible mm-hmm. mentor who became, uh, you know, our, on our board and, and, and mentored me. And, and we, you know, we raised money, you know, venture capital money for it, took it forward. And I, you know, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes and, and ultimately, uh, it was an interesting project, but, but I had to shut that down. Took money from, uh, from friends and family and, and, uh, as well as venture and it didn't work. And that was, you know, another one of those failures to have along the way that was a teaching moment. But ironically, then I, then I ultimately founded Shockwave with, uh, John Adams and Daniel Hawkins, 
two, you know, great, great balance. You know, you talk about an engineer, a business guy and a doctor. And that one, that one, you know, was a tough one out of the gate. It was 2008, took a long time to get it going. It almost died multiple times. I can tell you three distinct times that I said, we're done, we're cooked. And uh, amazingly through, you know, everyone's in a lot of other people's efforts, uh, it, it, it made it out, you know, and, and these, these projects, you know, you get the opportunity to learn, but you also get the opportunity to, to work with and learn from so many people. And, and, uh, you know, first in, in uh, investor in that was, uh, uh, well, the first actual real investor in that was very fortunate was my father. He wrote a check. Oh, wow. Nobody would. Uh, we couldn't get money from anybody. We were 18 months in, no money. And because of that, a few people wrote some small checks. I think we raised, might be off, but like $180,000. And we ran it out of a small little uh, office in Sunnyvale for a year and a half. And I used to go down there at night and work on it with one engineer after I'd done clinical cases all day. Uh, I dragged my daughter down there at night. She colored in the corner and we worked on it. And, uh, and then Fred Mall was very fortunate. Another big influence in my life. Fred Mall came in and he brought some investors and was became chairman and worked with us and taught us. And then, you know, we we brought in uh, investors. Another Sofa Nova, so Antoine Papernick became a big influence for me. Uh, he really took all the risk to back the project and uh, raise money. And you know, among Jay Watkins, Fred Mall, and Antoine Papernick, that became the core on the board all the way until we took it public. So uh, it was a great ride. I'm I'm just amazed at how, and it's not just you, but anyone who starts these companies, how there are those moments where you're you're thinking I'm cooked, I'm done, and <laughs> somehow you, you find a way you find a way through. And I don't know if it is hunger, desire, luck, all of the above, but uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if I could take that sort of roller coaster ride <laughs> of of being completely at the at the, the the bottom and then and then slowly finding your way out. What is that like? I mean, is it is it a slow process of recovery or does the door open suddenly and you're like, "Oh good, we've got another 5 or 6 months." How, how do things turn around? No, it uh it's probably different every time and and yeah. um I, I was I was fortunate cuz I loved the job I was doing every day. Uh I spent, you know, I I, I to say and and others may feel differently, but uh I wasn't a part-timer at Shockwave, but I mean, every bit of my brain and soul was in, was in Shockwave. I was out there most nights at times and we even, we moved it out, you know, farther away. Um, but I, I loved practice and I loved operating. I loved taking care of patients. I loved teaching. I loved biodesign. I was working with, you know, uh, fellows and, and graduate students all the time. So for me, it was, it was kind of, um, I've explained it to other people like diversifying my portfolio. It was, uh, I was working on something different all the time. Um, it wasn't that my heart wasn't in all of it, but some days you, you know, at any point in time, something's going to be up while something else is down and you got to have the staying power to kind of go the distance. And, you know, there was lots of times I'll tell you that Shockwave was going well, thank God, because something would have happened clinically. And, and, you know, I was in a tough business. I'd have a complication in the cath lab or, a patient who came in who who died and and uh, mm-hmm. I needed Shockwave to pick me up because it, you know it, in a sense it was this whole balance of kind of the ecosystem of uh, of innovation and uh, patient care. That's a great point. Well, let's talk about this this final exciting stage joining Edwards. I mean, how, how did this come together? Did you see this as part of a plan? Did you see that my next step will be joining a larger company because it's not a, a typical move? How did you come to join Edwards? So the answer is no, no, and no. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't see Edwards at all. I, I was very fortunate 
to start interacting with Edwards probably four or five years before I came to Edwards. Uh, I'd been down here and, and, and been invited to give a visiting lecture. I had done, we'd done some work with them. They started coming actually to a program that we started about five or six years ago at Stanford, this executive education program called Managing Innovation that Josh Mack or Paul Yock, myself and Jay Watkins started. And Edward started sending people about four or five years ago, sending teams to, to kind of train in, in the innovation strategy that we were all talking about and we'd experience in our startups. And as a result, I started interacting with folks at Edwards quite a bit, but I never anticipated ever that uh, I was looking for a full-time role at Edwards. And it just, it kind of happened. I got a phone call, I guess about a year and a half ago. Uh, and they said, you know, we're from Headhunters, and and, and you know, I've been been uh, talked to Headhunters many times before about different things, but this one seemed a little different. Didn't initially know who the company was actually, hmm. um, and in fact, uh, to the credit of of the person doing the search, he didn't he didn't uh, actually ask me if I was interested. He asked me who, who about other people, um, and and whether I thought that they fit, and and you know, other names he could get for the search. And I was really happy. Uh, you know, this was just prior to Shockwave's IPO. You know, we didn't know if we'd make it out, but we were certainly hoping that we would be in a position to, to take it public. Uh, practice was thriving. I was really in, still continue to enjoy working at, at Stanford and teaching biodesign. It was my 14th or 15th year of running the fellowship program. I, you know, I love it, still love it to this day, and I still go up and teach uh, periodically. So it was an interesting timing. And the more I first, you know, heard when I first heard about it, I, I kind of said, no, great opportunity, but I'm, I'm, I'm not looking. And, and for whatever reason, back to that same thing I said earlier about pivoting in time, they talked me into a sit down with Mike Masala and uh, a short meeting turned into a much longer talk. And uh, I walked away from that meeting going, wow. But I have to say, I, you know, I thought about we talked for, for significantly longer. And, and this was not a this was not a few days. This was months over the discussion. And frankly, it, it, it took some time. It was an incredible opportunity to really do something impactful uh, on a larger scale. And at the end of the day, that was kind of what ultimately was the most important to me, to go to an organization that I could do something really impactful. Um, and I was at you know, a stage that I, it, that I knew where Shockway was in practice. I knew where I was. I certainly wasn't ready to leave practice per se. But at the same time, I really was excited about Edwards and really excited about the people at Edwards and what 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 we could do together. Um, and frankly, what Edwards had already done, being really, you know, the most, in my mind, premier cardiac cardiology based company. And so, you know, ultimately, I, I uh, assessed, I have to be honest, I, I thought for a period of time, things are pretty good where I am. So why take that risk? And frankly, you know, am I ready to, to take this kind of challenge? And frankly, I remember having uh, giving a lecture one day to my fellows on uh, fear of failure. And I remember walking out of that and saying, look, I got to practice what I preach. And so uh, I decided uh, to, to take the leap to leave Stanford. And everyone, I talked to lots of people, same mentors I mentioned before, and all of them were, you know, great advice. My wife was incredible. She, uh, she was willing to, to support the move. And she even said, you know, you just made full professor at Stanford. I mean, you know, tell me why you want to move. And when I explained it to her, she said, I'm, I'm honestly, this is not, she said, I, I get it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm willing to support you. So we don't make decisions, uh, in, in isolation. You know, I'd love to say that it was, it was a group effort. It was a lot of people's influence and, and, you know, a lot of family support. 
to make the decision to move. But, you know, I'm, I'm one year in now and uh, I could not, you know, couldn't be happier with the decision. Tell us a bit about your uh, your day to day. Are you? It would seem to be if you're a larger uh, a C level exec at one of these companies, maybe you're you're not rolling up your sleeves like you would at Stanford somewhere else. But how uh, how involved? What are your your duties precisely, and, and sort of how involved are you getting in in the innovation? I wouldn't have taken this job unless I could roll up my sleeves. As the chief scientific officer, I have kind of a broad uh, responsibility across the organization in innovation. The uh, as you know, there's four biz- active commercial business units at Edwards, uh, surgical, critical care, uh, THV, and uh, TMTT. Um, and so there's a fifth business unit, which is a non-commercial business unit called Advanced Technology, and I'm also responsible for that group. And that's really the kind of the future, where, where we're going, the white space outside in the future, what could be next? And that really was what caught my attention and, and how Mike caught my attention was the opportunity to to really build the future. And we say, you know, in advanced tech, innovating the future. And so it's a, it's a combination of unbelievable engineers, uh, core capabilities in science and, you know, and, and preclinical testing, really brilliant clinical regulatory expertise, strong and again, core innovation engineering. And it was the chance to also to shape that organization and move it towards the not just the engineering driven capabilities that it had a long history of having, but also trying to bring and, and blend it with this capability for looking at the unmet clinical need with this strong engineering talent. And so, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate we we're I'm responsible for really looking at internal development, but I'm also fortunate that I'm also responsible looking externally. So evaluating uh, technologies that are out there that are interested and exciting that we might be interested in partnering somehow with and ultimately bringing into Edwards. And so it's kind of this internal external opportunity to look and then to try and build value for for Edwards, but also for patients um, to get things that are exciting that are out there and accelerate their ability to get into patient care really in unmet clinical needs. And last question, you've, you've got a great perspective uh, on the industry. What is your assessment of medtech and advanced technology going forward, both within Edwards, but also outside the field? You're looking around, you're seeing what, what's coming. How excited are you about the future? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pumped for the future. I think that we are on, you know, there's been some, I love the history of, of medtech. I love some of the unbelievable innovators that have, uh, you know, the John Simpsons and, and, uh, Julio Pomaz, uh, you know, Tom Fogarty's, these, these, they're all legends. And, uh, you know, the history of what they created along the way. But the opportunity now is, is not just to, to build kind of traditional mechanical devices and catheters. It's really a chance to transform with the way that digital and sensors and, and implantables and, and disposables are all kind of merging the information age. I think that the there's going to be a whole nother generation of of uh, John Simpsons, Tom Fogarty's, and Julio Pomaz and Paul Yox, for that matter, that are going to come, but are going to think a little differently. the The irony is the solutions will be different, but the but the but the problems will be the same. The unmet need, the ability to identify the unmet need, to really understand what patients, the system, what physicians really need. And what will ultimately drive value for patients and for the system, that is what ultimately uh, will set the framework for some very creative different solutions that will be different. They'll be more evolved. They'll be more exciting. They're probably going to be more personalized. Um, but the core capabilities will be the same. Well, I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. And I, I really do enjoy 
hearing these med tech stories and you tell a great one. So Todd, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. It was a real pleasure. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast episode. Thanks again for uh, being part of the Device Talks family. You can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. Please do connect with me there. You can find Chris Newmarker, my podcast partner there as well. He is on Twitter at Newmarker, as in a new marker. And he's also on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, spelled just like it sounds. Please do share this podcast. When you do, please do uh, tag us so we can be part of the conversations. And uh, please do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. And of course, tell your friends and family about it. I never asked that, but we would love to have more people listening. We'd love to have people reviewing this podcast and giving it, uh, we hope, uh, a goodly amount of stars so uh, more people can, uh, can find the podcast. And uh, Okay, that's enough babbling from me. Thanks again for being with us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We'll be back next week with a full episode featuring Chris Newmarker and his new markers, newsmakers. And uh, that's a wrap. 